Thank you. All right. Appreciate that. Which I did recognize, actually, as a medley. There was more, but my one of my favorite Christmas hymns was in there, so Harris got to hear his this morning. I got to hear mine. Uh oh. When when was that? Thursday. You had a birthday. I mean, we could sing it. I'm just not going to lead it. That's the only thing. <laughs> Day to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear bless you. Happy birthday to you. All right. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. <clears throat> and I'm glad you're all here this morning. Looks like we have most of the crowd here. We've got a few that are gone. And, of course, we got Brother Charles over there and Brother Robert over here. So we're glad to have you with us this morning. Now, hmm, that's coming in. It's fuzzy. I got new glasses, and I got progressive lenses. First prescription glasses I've had, and I'm adjusting. Just got them yesterday. Now, if I go like the bad part about it, from your perspective, the good part is that if I go like this, that clock is as clear as bell. It's the best I've ever seen it. That used to be my out, Charles. I can't see the clock. I couldn't make out what was going on. But now, I mean, that is just as clear as it can be. But now, this is not good right here. I'm going to have to work on this one here. Well, you got to move your head around. My wife promises she says, it'll clear up. Just stay with it. It'll it'll get better. But boy, right now, hmm, this is, um, I'm learning to point your chin. Wherever you're supposed to be looking, you got to point your chin that way, this way, this way. Well, I'm trying to get into that. So anyway, Isaiah chapter 42. We'll look at a passage or two here this morning. There are some songs in the book of Isaiah. They call them servant songs because they emphasize the servanthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four of those. The first one here in chapter 42, and it talks about the call of the servant. Um, the Lord's servant. And I probably will end up looking at all of these songs before we're done, although we obviously won't have time to do it all today. But just, a, and a not even an exhaustive look either. It'll be quite brief. And so we're going to look at these and the, somewhat with the idea of the Christmas season in mind and the idea of the promised coming of the Messiah, as has been emphasized already in song this morning and in the scripture that was read. And here, the coming servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, that's really quite a contrast to a lot of the preaching that we're accustomed to hearing today. Some of this is pretty loud, cry. 
A bruised re- matter of fact, I remember my daughter hearing this preacher just waxing on eloquent one time. She couldn't have been more than about, well, let's see, she's one eighty three. She had been about four years old or so. And she asked me one, she said, Daddy, what's he doing up there? And I said, well, he's trying to preach God's word. He said, well, he doesn't have to yell. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Verse 4, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. To open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise from the end of the earth, ye that go down to the sea, and so on. Now the portion we want to look at ended in verse 9, but I wanted us to see that in verse 10, having given this record of the call to his servant, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's our identification of who it is. They are to break out in new song regarding what he has promised that he would come to do. Now, he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, my chosen one, as some translations put it. And so you have this combination here of my servant... My chosen one, my elect one, this one that I have chosen, a combination of things that show that when God calls, when he puts his finger upon a man, when he chooses, then you become his servant. And so there is a direct relationship between one who is chosen and his identification as a servant. Look with me over at 1 Kings 11 for a moment. I want us to just take a little gander at this. 1 Kings 11. You can also stick your finger over in Psalm 105 if you happen to get ahead of everybody else. 1 Kings 11, Psalm 105. 1 Kings 11 verse 13 says, How be it? I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. Then look over at at verses 32 to 34. Verse 32 says, But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake and for Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. 
because that they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, and uh, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes, and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David his father. Howbeit, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake, whom I chose, because he kept my commandments and my statutes. So you see this, again, this relationship between being chosen and being a servant. Look over at Psalm 105 um, in verse 26 regarding Moses and Aaron. He says, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. Now it doesn't mean that Moses was only a servant, and only Aaron was chosen. You have a, a couplet that complements the second half, and they're related to the same thing. Aaron, Moses were both chosen, both servants. And then, if you look one more time over to Haggai, You got Zephaniah, then Haggai, then Zechariah. Zechari- uh, Haggai, chapter two. Just go to right to the end of the of the book, verse twenty-three, the last verse. And there it says, "In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts." And so all we see here is that there's a significant relationship between being a servant and being chosen. God's elect one whom he has chosen will be his servant. He will serve him. And he says, whom I uphold and my soul delights. If you look down at verse 6. He says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand. Another significance regarding the relationship of these two and that he will empower, he will ensure that this one that he has called, this servant, the Messiah, will be empowered to fulfill the task he's called him to. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Or, as some translate it, he will faithfully bring justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. And this is what he's going to accomplish. And so, in this introduction here, we see an address, really, that goes out to all the men of the earth. This is not just strictly to Israel. But it's to the whole earth that this promised one would come. This one whom we are about to celebrate his birth in such humble means, in such humble manner. And some even would like to allude to an indication of the Trinity in this passage. For Yahweh speaks, saying, I will uphold my servant. I will place my spirit... Or I have put my spirit upon him. So you have Yahweh, the Father. You have the servant, the son, 
and the Spirit placed upon him, put upon him, empowering him, assuring and guaranteeing that what he had called him forth for, this task, it was going to be accomplished. Now, it tells us in verse 2 something about the manner and the character of this servant. And that is that he will not cry in the street, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He's not going to go out and call a lot of attention to himself. But he's just simply going to proclaim what God had sent him to do and called him to do. Now, of course, he attracted a lot of attention by what he said. And, you know, I like to contrast that with a lot of what you hear, whether it's in a worship service or you hear it on the radio or however you hear the word of God being proclaimed today, that it's not necessarily the guy that proclaims the loudest that is the most effective in getting his message across. You hear some of the most mild-mannered men speak, and you know that you had one right here at this church who could speak in such the softest words and yet with such power and with such evidence of the Spirit because he was speaking the truth. You know, when you, when you don't really necessarily always speak the truth, you sometimes just have to raise your voice to emphasize what you're trying to say. Such was not characteristics of the Lord Jesus, characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you try to imagine what kind of person he was, you, you picture him walking through the streets of Capernaum or Jerusalem or the dusty roads between those two areas, as he did oftentimes. And you read these sermons that he preached, or you read the accounts of him instructing his disciples or the crowds in the temple courts or wherever he might be. And you try to imagine in your own mind just how he was coming across as a teacher and as a preacher. And he certainly was not representative of what we seem to be accustomed to today, but certainly another kind of person. As a matter of fact, I like this in verse 3, a bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Now, that's a significant phrase because we saw that already, uh, that he's going to bring judgment unto truth. We're going to see that three times in this little passage here. and that, So we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But this bruised reed. Have you thought about a reed in a pond or around the edge of a lake that they're pretty brittle, that they're easily broken? And yet here he says it's a bruised reed. How much more tender, how much weaker this bruised reed would be. And yet he says he is such of a tender nature that he wouldn't even break one of those. And a smoking flax, which is representative of something that was 
when it was smoking, it was just about ready to go out. And of course, as oftentimes with you and I, if we've got a match or a candle that's, you know, it's burnt up and it's about ready to go out, our tendency is to want to go over there and pinch it off or stick it under the faucet. That's what I do and run a little water on it and just get rid of the thing. But the picture here is that in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he dealt with people, and I think that's exactly who he's referring to here in this passage, that in his ministry to people, even the weakest, the most susceptible to being abused by society, but most importantly by the religious leaders of the day, that he would be so tender and gentle in dealing with them that if you could picture a bruised reed by the lakeside and such a little breeze to blow that over that he wouldn't even harm it, wouldn't even put out the flame, the little ember of a smoking flax. Now, I know that when you read through the gospel accounts and the life of Christ, if you look at how he dealt with the religious leaders, it's quite a different story, wasn't it? And if you watch, you know, pay attention to the, a lot of the phraseology, references oftentimes to the small and to the great, to the big and the little, to the rich and the poor, to those of social status and those of more humble means. And when he dealt with those that held the higher status, that had the wealth, you remember how harsh, as penetrating his words were? How he pronounced woe after woe after woe upon the religious leaders of the day. Those who held the prominent positions and those who held the power and those who exerted it at their will and demanded that people respect them because of the position they had. And you know, I would submit to you that not a lot has changed today. I don't know how frequently you have opportunity to go out and be around other churches or people in the ministry because I work where I do. I have opportunity to do that on a frequent, pretty frequent basis. And you know, I don't see a whole lot of change between Jesus' day and what we see today. And I think that in that coming day, that all of these passages that we're, we're speaking of here and what Jerry read to us earlier, when that day comes, it's just going to be a big surprise when judgment comes in that day. And I think my personal, now I'm just speaking kind of off my personal opinion on this one, but you look at things like, um, and I'll just give an example, the rich man and Lazarus. When you saw the fortunes of one man reversed with the other man, one had it made in this lifetime, but in the next life, things weren't so well off. 
But the one who was the small, not the great, in this life, his fortunes were exactly the opposite and reversed. And I think we're going to see an awful lot of that in the age to come. This bruised reed and this smoking flax, we really ought to identify with that. And we really should appreciate with great value what it means, the Lord's ministry to us, and how he ministers to those who seek the truth. Now, if you well, in verse 4, he tells us there, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. Now, there's the second time we've saw that, seen that phrase. He sh- shall set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. What does this phrase mean? He shall bring justice in the earth. Well, I think very simply. All that we understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do, and exactly what we had read to us back in Isaiah chapter 9, regarding the birth of this one, where it said, The government shall be upon his shoulder. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and his kingdom to order it. Well, that's what, that's what most think that that's exactly what that expression means. When he will bring justice to the earth, a right order to the earth. And so that's something that we ought to be looking forward to. That he is going to bring a right order upon the earth. And it's emphasized for a third time. And we'll see that in just a moment. Now, it says there, the isles shall wait for his law. That is, wait for anticipation with instruction, uh, with the instructions that he will give regarding what will take place during that time when the Lord's servant comes to establish the very things he's talking about, this justice, this right order upon the earth. Now, Basically, that's the introduction, the first four verses. He tells us about his servant. He announces his call and then tells us what the character of that servant's going to be like and a little bit about what his task is going to be. In verse 5, he now addresses the servant himself. He talks to him. And he says... Thus saith God the Lord that created the heavens and stretched them out. He that spread forth the earth and which comes out of it. He that giveth bread unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I the Lord have called thee in righteousness. I have called thee and will hold thine hand. What promise of assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ himself had. That God the Father was going to be with him to bless him. And you know, you think about that. You think of all that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to have to face at the hands of the religious leaders of the day. Knowing full well what he was walking into. I was meditating on that quite a bit here. And boy, just to think of, you know, he, he's, he set his face like a flint. He went right towards it knowing what he was walking into. And yet, because he knew the Father was with him, 
He had the promise and the assurance that he was going to be able to carry out all that the Father had given him to do. He will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Now there we have that given to us again. And so we again see that this is not just something given to the Gentile or to the Israel alone, but it's something it's a message for the whole earth. That God, through his Messiah, his servant, this one who he, whom he has called, is going to come and bring a right order to the entire earth. And there is coming a day when justice will prevail. And that righteousness and peace will be the dominant themes upon this earth. And of course, you cannot have peace unless you first have righteousness. And that's exactly how scripture represents it. Righteousness first, then peace to follow. Now, this light, he says, to open blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison... And them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now that's an interesting phrase when you think about it. Because you have to ask yourself, how many people really are blind and how many people are in prison with respect to the entire population? Even in Jesus' day, let alone to compare it to our day. If you compare those numbers to the whole population of the earth, it's a pretty small number, is it not? And so it makes you have to wonder if this is literal language, if he's just making a promise here just to those that are in prison. Well, if that's the case, it wouldn't be such a bad thing to be in prison, would it? Would it be such a bad thing to be blind? If this is who he's coming to minister to especially... Or would there be some figurative language involved here that he's talking about those blind spiritually, those in prison, sitting in darkness, in the prison house, blinded, and he comes to open the eyes, to be a light. See, it fits, in my way of thinking, it fits the idea that he is to be a light to the Gentiles. And you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians regarding the gospel about those who are blind. And if anyone is to see the truth of the gospel, it's only the Lord that can open the eyes. It is only him that can enable us to see the truth. And that's what he came to do. To give us light. I am the Lord, that is my name. Excuse me. Yeah, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. He closes his whole section here by calling attention to what this is all. This is a summation now that is all going to bring glory to God. He will not share his glory with another, neither my praise to graven images. The former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. And how many years was it until the Messiah came? We just heard it was 750, 800 years, somewhere around there, that 
this book was written before the Messiah actually came. And yet already here he's announcing a new thing. New things, he says, are come to pass. The former are gone to pass. New things do I declare. And before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I didn't turn over there, but I will now, to Matthew, and I hope I remember my passage. I think it was Matthew 12, was it? I got it. I went to write it down and wrote it backwards, and but it's Matthew 12. In verse 14. It says there, Then the Pharisees went out and held a, count, held a council against him how they might destroy him. Now, just take note from what we've just read to where we are now in his confrontation with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And he says there in verse 15, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now, it's interesting that verse is kind of a summation here of verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 42. In his name shall the Gentiles trust. This one whom God called forth that was long promised to Israel is yet here announced to be one who is going to preach a message that will be not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles. And not only would it be for the Gentiles, but in contrast here to the religious leaders who are representatives of Israel, the Pharisees, and then of course we could add in there the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers and what have you, those who represented the nation, religiously speaking, rejected that very message. But in him, he says, the Gentiles will trust. And, of course, all we have to do then is at the completion and fulfillment of his ministry, as we enter into the book of Acts and we see the disciples and, uh, carrying the gospel message outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, to the known corners of the earth, we saw Gentile after Gentile after Gentile coming to Christ. And we saw increasingly more and more the rejection by the nation of Israel and the people, that is the Jewish people. In other words, initially there was a great response by the common people. But as time went on, 
and the preaching of the gospel over the next about three to four decades, then that began to diminish. And the Gentiles then became the, the dominant receivers of the gospel message. And, of course, that's where we find ourselves today. Recipients of this very thing that he had promised. So many times when we look at passages like this, the only ones we really think of are Israel. And they are a large dot on the, on the radar screen. They are out in front. And they are, are um, in a prominent position, prophetically speaking, to watch as to where we are headed. But I simply wanted to point out, where are we today? With recognition of this gospel message. This good news regarding the Messiah and what he came to do. Now, of course, we could just go on from there and expand and talk about all that he is going to accomplish in bringing this justice to the earth that he talked about three times in this passage. This right order that will be brought about and fulfilled at the Lord's return. That which we are waiting for yet today. The establishment of his government. This government that would be upon his shoulders to be established upon this earth. And it will be for those who have followed him and received his word. I long for that day. I look for that. As I, well, I don't say as I drive about. That's what, was, that's what happened the other day as I was driving about. And I was thinking about, just looking about what was going on around me in this earth. People going here, going there, doing this, carrying on their normal course of life and business. And I thought about what we spoke of just a few weeks ago about this great contrast, this great division that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis between the kingdom of this earth and the kingdom of God. And these two realms, which are in conflict with each other, and not just these two realms, but the leaders of these two realms. And we're fast approaching the day, fast approaching the day, when that's going to come to a head. And there's going to be the biggest clash we ever saw or ever dreamed that this world could ever encounter. And as we look forward to that, we look forward to the victory, the promised victory right here that's going to occur. It's going to happen. And I want to be a part of it. I want to be in that day known to be as a disciple, a true follower of Christ, one that he will call forth and say, well done, enter thou into my joy, enter thou into my kingdom, come on in and serve with me. That's where I want to be. And I trust that's where you want to be as well. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the encouragement of your word. And as we look to this, this coming day, just in a couple of weeks when we celebrate the birth of our Savior, 
we want to acknowledge that this was a momentous event, a miraculous event, one that calls forth our attention, not just to that event itself, but yet what is to come and what the future holds for us. It makes one look to Hebrews 12, 2, where it tells us of the Lord Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And Lord, we know that there's more, so much more beyond the cross. And Jesus looked forward to that, kept his eye out on that which is ahead of us. And I pray, Father, that you help us to do that today, to not be filled with the and enamored with the things of this earth and the things that are going on around us. But what is yet to come? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.